This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. At the end of the day, I agree with folks who said that we shouldn't talk of eternal submission between the Son and the Father. Um, But some of the main arguments that I'd seen in books, I didn't think that those were the best approaches to make that claim. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master, joined as always by James Dolezal, my good friend. And today on the line with us is Glenn Butner, who is the Assistant Professor of Theology and Christian Ministry at Sterling College in Kansas. He's published a a number of academic articles, but we want to talk to him today about a book that he recently authored called The Son Who Learned Obedience, a theological case against the eternal submission of the Son. So, Glenn, thanks for joining us today. And thanks so much for having me. Now, in the introduction to this book, you you talk about some various online controversies, which our listeners are probably pretty familiar with. Many of them took place on the Alliance websites, uh, posts by Liam Gallagher, Carl Truman, that kind of got the ball rolling in in many spheres in terms of this conversation about the eternal submission of the sun. But the conversation's been going on a lot longer than that. The, the question I want to ask you, though, is why did you think it was worth moving from some of those online conversations to actually do a book-length response and analysis of this idea of the eternal submission of the sun? Right. Um, it's a great question. And I think there are several different reasons. Uh, one of the biggest ones, though, is that In certain respects, I found the arguments on both sides to be lacking. At the end of the day, I agree with folks who said that we shouldn't talk of eternal submission between the Son and the Father. Um, But some of the main arguments that I'd seen in books by Kevin Giles, for example, or Millard Erickson, um, Thomas McCall, I didn't think that those were the best approaches to make that claim. And so I'd had a little bit of success publishing an article um, connecting the debate to Christology, which I think clarifies the matter. Um, And I kept receiving emails and invitations to publish on blogs and conference speaking invitations from folks who said this had been particularly helpful. And so I thought if I expanded those arguments and connected the debate to more doctrines, it might clarify things, particularly for folks in the pews who might not immediately see the practical implications of some seemingly obscure Trinitarian doctrines. Um, When you factor in that blog posts and you know, online comments tend to have less longevity than books anyway. Um, you know, I figure in a few years, some folks may not remember these online debates, but it would be nice to have something on the shelf in your local Christian college library as a reference. Um, because many of those who have held to eternal submission, their books are out there in the libraries and they've sold far better than I can hope that my book ever will. Um, so those are probably two of the main factors that led me to write something down and Uh, create a book form instead of just something online or in an academic journal. Glenn, if someone were to say to you, um, what's wrong? I'm asking here for sort of your brief response because you give a book length response. But if someone were to just your initial response, if someone were to say, well, what's wrong with saying that the son submits to the father? Isn't the father the first person of the Godhead? Um, Shouldn't sons obey fathers? Something along those lines. Um, How would you begin to address the problem with this idea that the son submits to the father eternally in the Godhead itself? That's an excellent question. Um, and I'll try and be brief and not summarize the whole book. <laughs> I think the basic problem 
starts to be seemingly obscure when we think about what we mean by the words person and being. When we say God as a trinity is one being and three persons. Hmm. And historically, um, Christians who developed the doctrine of the trinity associated actions like submitting or obeying or commanding with being or nature, which are roughly synonymous for our purposes. Um, and since they're there's only one being in nature and God, according to the doctrine of the Trinity, that would mean there um, is only one will. Um, There's only one act. And so speaking of the father commanding and the son obeying in eternity in the divinity, or speaking of um, the son submitting with a distinct will from the father is to sort of change the meaning of the words being in person and to suddenly identify actions with the three divine persons instead of the one divine being, which in and of itself doesn't seem that threatening to many people, um, which is why I think in some senses, the even bigger problem is that these doctrines end up affecting other doctrines. Um, The doctrine of the Trinity was assumed by those who developed many of the ideas about the doctrine of God, so the divine attributes. It was assumed by those who developed a theological understanding of Christology. Um, It was assumed by those who developed an understanding of the atonement. So once you change your understanding of what the Trinity is and what being in person refer to, um, there are significant ramifications across systematic theology. And that's really what the book tries to dig into is sort of outline several of the places where we run into extremely sharp um, conflicts with tradition and this claim that the son eternally submits to the father. I wonder if part of the problem is that when we say same nature or homoousios, as the creed says, um, that we misunderstand sometimes what we mean. Like I could say Glenn and James uh, have the same nature, but different wills. But of course we mean generically the same nature. Um, Correct. Whereas in the Trinity doctrine, we don't mean, a nature of the same kind merely, but actually the numerically identical same nature. That's correct. Um, We would say God is not part of a kind or part of a genus. Um, And that's, I think that's one of the problems actually historically with homoousios um, of the same being. You see half a century after that word is used at Nicaea of folks arguing about what that word means. And at times even saying, well, it's not clear enough. We should reject it. Um, and to fully have a, a Nicene or pro-Nicene account of the Trinity, we need a little bit more than just that word. We need to understand that it means numerical unity and identity and not belonging to a kind or being three instances or property bearers of one trope or something like that. I think it was Prestige in his book on the Church Fathers uh, who who mentioned that um, the precision of that term was really was really given in the subsequent debate after the after the Council of Nicaea, especially by Athanasius. Um, mean, given the term itself, homoousios. I mean, even later creeds will say of the Son, uh, same uh, same in nature with God as divine, same in nature with us as human. But of course same in nature with the father is divine is numerically identical same in nature with us is only generically at the same uh, so even there the the heritage of that term homoousios is i think you're right a little a little bit tortured and needs some explanation i think you're right and um prestige is not the only one to note that if you read kelly or ayers or steed uh, mm-hmm. it's a well-known problem uh, right. which is one reason why i think it's helpful to move beyond that term uh, in this debate 
I have two two uh, questions uh, that I want to follow up with. Uh, the first one is, um, what's wrong with saying then, um, same nature, different wills? You find arguments like that in uh, Wayne Grudem, for instance. I mean, Grudem doesn't want to say they have different natures. He's emphatic that they don't. Uh, but by by attributing an an act of will to the son uh, from eternity and not a different nature, what's happening there? What's happening to, what's what's the problem with pairing out will from nature? Great question. Um, that's a problem that we really have to look to a later period of history to identify. And that's uh, in the 600s with the rise of the monothelite controversy. Um, there were actually a historical group of Christians um, that would identify a will with person instead of with nature, Hmm. Um, but it was in the context of Christological debates. So uh, as many listeners are probably aware, the Council of Chalcedon would say that in Christ, there are two natures, fully human nature and a fully divine nature united into a single person. Um, Well, if we identify will as something that is proper to person and Christ lacks a human person, the logical conclusion would be that Christ lacked a human will, which is what the monothelites claim. But this is a big problem because it is the will of humanity that's the source of a significant portion of our sin. Um, Disobedience to the law is an act of our will. Traditional understandings of salvation are that Christ, using his human will, offered an act of obedience to the Father um, so that he could live a sinless life that would then be accepted as a sacrifice. And that his merit for living in this sinless way would be the basis of Christian justification. Um, Basically, his human obedience would be counted as ours. Um, Or when we get to sanctification, because Christ had a human will, um, which is perfect, um, we can receive a human perfect will as the Spirit transforms us so that we are in Christ, having the same sort of humanity that Christ had. As soon as we say that will is a property of person, we say, since Jesus doesn't have a human person, according to traditional orthodoxy. Uh, First of all, we say that Christ isn't fully human because he doesn't have a will. Um, Second of all, we say, you know, we undermine the foundations of justification and salvation for he couldn't have offered a human obedience to fulfill the covenant on humanity's behalf. Third of all, we undermine sanctification because I can't receive the perfect human will that Jesus had by grace because he didn't have a human will. And I certainly can't receive a divine will you know, in all its omnipotence or anything like that. Um, So once you make that divorce and start looking at the distinction between will and nature and other areas of theology, it's sort of like a a set of dominoes where problems keep piling up. Glenn, I think that's an excellent answer. And frankly, one that I I think was too little emphasized, perhaps uh, maybe not by anyone's fault, but maybe underemphasized a couple of years ago when this became uh, a sort of... um, online debate this idea that if you if you try to make him have a, a will grounded in person and that that will is eternally divine then you'll you'll deprive him of the necessary human will as second adam well, i'd like to think so too which is why the book came about we'll see how the wider <laughs> I think jonathan, theological world receives it <laughs> i think jonathan has a question well for no you. i i just wanted to follow up glenn because i i i agree i mean i think that's a, a tremendously important argument and and one that it i think has been underemphasized. but if you if you were to read someone like grudem or even look back at some of the responses that were given one of the sort of boilerplate responses to the kind of thing you're arguing is well yes but 
the Bible makes it clear that Christ submits to the Father. Uh, so, I wonder if you could just navigate briefly through some of the biblical evidence we have in the Gospels and in the Epistles about the relationship between Christ and His Father. That's a great question because, of course, at the end of the day, if the Bible teaches clearly that the Son eternally submits to the Father, we've got a monumental task on our hands of rethinking generations of Christian orthodoxy. Um, fortunately, though, I, I don't think that case is made at all in the Bible. I argue in the book that I, I don't see a text in scripture where one of the human authors of scripture, like Paul or Isaiah, or you name it, sits down and intends to address this question of, does the father eternally command the son? Does the son eternally submit to the father? Um, I think at the end of the day, we have to resolve that question by appealing to a second order reflection on the Bible. So what must be true to make sense of the pattern of text that we see? Um, but we don't have any direct guidance there for this particular question. Um, so what I actually do in my final chapter is make that case by going through a number of proof texts that a lot of supporters of eternal submission will point to. Um, and the biggest one here, and really the only text in the New Testament that uses the Greek word that we would translate as submit, or in, in another tense um, that we would translate as to be subjected under, um, the only text in the Bible that actually uses that of Jesus outside of his clear incarnate life is 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Um, and many in the debate have pointed to that, I think of Ware and Grudem in particular, and saying, look, here's evidence that Jesus is submitting after the ascension. Uh, in what Ware calls eternity future. So I spend a considerable amount of time working through 1 Corinthians 15. Um, and I think the larger context shows that Paul actually has in mind uh, a human submission of Christ, albeit a submission after the ascension. Um, because the context of chapter 15 is looking at the, um, the resurrection. The main thesis of Paul here is if Christ hasn't been raised, we've not been raised. Um, and this common motif in Paul that we see is a comparison and contrast between the first Adam, Adam of Genesis chapter one through three, and the last Adam, which is Christ. Um, whatever the first Adam did, the last Adam or the second Adam is coming to undo. Um, so this is looking at uh, Christ in his humanity and one of the things that the last Adam that Christ does in his humanity is conquer sins so that we may be raised. But another aspect of that is that we see Jesus fulfilling that role of dominion that Adam failed in. So in the garden in uh, chapters one and two, we see God telling Adam that he has dominion over the animals, tend the garden, all of these different commands. And in chapter three, he's already dropped the ball. So what Paul, I take to be doing in chapter 15, um, what I take him to be doing is showing that Christ will fulfill that role of dominion. And we see that not only because he has this context of last Adam imagery and of talking about the significance of the human resurrection, but because he cites a number of Psalms that in the Old Testament and in other citations in the New Testament are taken to refer to Christ and his messianic humanity. Um, we see that because his overall objective here is to show if Christ wasn't raised in a human way, then our humanity has no hope. Um, so 1528 isn't actually saying, you know, Jesus and his divinity eternally submits to the father. It's actually, I think saying at the second coming, Christ will reign in an Adamic fashion for a period of time, and then will be subjected to God who will be all in all. 
um, which will be the end of an Adamic mediator and some sort of direct presence of the fullness of the Godhead. And that's so far in the future, we don't get a crystal clear account of what that's going to look like in the Bible. But I don't see that this passage is actually talking about the imminent Trinity as much as it is talking about this Adamic emphasis, which then makes it an act of human submission. So that's sort of the linchpin exegetically for many of these arguments. That's a great response on the first Corinthians 15 argument. And I'm, uh, I'm sure that readers will benefit from other similar responses to various go-to passages that the subordinationist uses. I want to finish with one brief question. Glenn, what, what is at stake if we insist that the son does eternally submit to the father and the Godhead beyond uh, simply having to revise a long Christian consensus that he does not? Uh, what's at stake, particularly with regard to, like, say, our worship and our Christology and, and even our our monotheism, if if at all, and not not necessarily saying everyone's going to end up in the worst possible outcome, uh, but what what sort of trajectories uh, are are put in motion by saying the son submits to the father from all eternity? It's kind of hard to speculate exactly where things will go because I see a strange tension in a lot of the theologians who affirm eternal submission. On the one hand, many will say that they affirm classical Christology. They will say that they affirm classical accounts of satisfaction theory of atonement, so that the reason we're saved is because Christ obeys as a perfect human and then dies despite not needing to as a sinless human because the wages of sin is death. And that this gift results in merits that can be applied to us. I mean, I, I see Grudem at different points where Lethem, um, a number of others articulating those doctrines in a classical way. Um, but then in other places, you see this Trinitarian theology that to me seems logically incompatible with those same beliefs. So it might be that in a generation, and this is my hope that that contradiction is recognized and we see a return to the traditional accounts of the Trinity, or it might be that folks will see that contradiction and thereby revise accounts of who Christ is or accounts of how salvation works or accounts of the divine attributes. Um, and really who knows what those revisions will look like. Um, I think we've already seen in this generation, um, some changes in the doctrine of God that are in fact quite compatible with eternal submission. So one thing that really doesn't make sense to me is how you can talk about the son eternally submitting to the father. If both are eternal, if there's no succession of time for them, if there's no change for them, what does it even mean for the son to submit to the father? Well, that's a big problem for my doctrine of God. But James, as you've written, there are certainly a number of evangelical theologians who affirm that God does change. They say he's, he's mutable. Um, there are notions of temporal omnipresence instead of eternality. Um, and that doctrine of God actually fits much more easily with this idea of eternal submission in the Trinity. So this change in Trinitarian doctrine might reinforce those same problems uh, with the doctrine of God and make those even harder to refute. On the other hand, seeing the error, errors in Trinitarianism derived from that doctrine of God could lead to a return to more classical accounts of those attributes. So the Trinity may seem abstract, but I think this will be a really important debate that'll have ramifications for what evangelicalism looks like in the next generation. 
Well, I know I speak for James in saying that we agree that uh, it is an incredibly important debate, and uh, we're grateful for your work on this book and for coming on with us today. Again, the title of the book is The Son Who Learned Obedience. So, Glenn Butner, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Theology on the Go. As always, I would remind you that we are dependent on the gifts, the generosity of listeners like you, so that we can do programs like Theology on the Go and the other important things that the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals is engaged with. If you'd like to donate and you're able, you can go to AllianceNet.org and click the Donate button. You can also go to PlaceForTruth.org and click the Donate button there. Also, for those of you who are interested, we'd like to offer you the chance to win a copy of Glenn Butner's book, The Son Who Learned Obedience. If you go to PlaceForTruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link, there'll be an opportunity for you to enter to win that book, which I think we both agree is a very worthwhile uh, volume. Again, uh, we're grateful that you are listening. We are thankful whenever you're able to recommend it to someone who can be helped by this podcast. We love hearing from you, so feel free to email us with questions or with interview ideas or topics that you'd like to hear us discuss in the future. And as always, thanks for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. <laughs>